You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to God's Word and to uh, Isaiah chapter 42. I want to read verses uh, 1 to 9. You'll find it on page 727. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It is so magnificent, so wonderful, so beautiful. Please don't let me get in the way of it. And don't let our deadness, sin, bitterness, and ignorance infect it. Instead, bring it to us. Quiet our hearts, renew our minds, release our bodies. May we see your glory the glory of your precious servant. Lord, help each person here to see Jesus. You tell us that blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see you. But how can we see you when our hearts are not pure? So we come and we ask that you would purify us, that you would cleanse us, that you would create in us a clean heart. We ask it in your name. Amen. Sometimes I'm uh, really scared about preaching something because I know it's really hard or because I know that people can react badly to it and there's a a natural fear. Um, I have a much stronger fear actually with this. And it's this, I find this passage to be so extraordinarily wonderful and beautiful that my fear is, uh, as I was praying, that I would get in the way. Um, I think that I was uh, studying this this week and there was a lot of stuff going on, different things happening in my head and in my heart and I found this absolutely overwhelming just looking at it 
And then the thought struck me, well, if we could get it, if we could understand this, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, if you can get this, if you can grasp this, if you can understand this, then whatever the brokenness in your life, whatever the sorrow in your life, whatever the frustration, whatever the anger, whatever the spiritual deadness, if you get this, you will be renewed. And so uh, I I pray that you will see uh, and that God will speak to you through his word. Now, you know the story of the child in Sunday school, how they're asked, uh, what swims on water has feathers and goes quack, quack? And the child says, well, it sounds like a duck, but I know the answer is Jesus, because... Every sensible child works out that 50-50, you're going to be right if you just say Jesus uh, each time. And I'm, I'm going to ask a question to which the answer is Jesus. And I know that there's an instinctive reaction that many of us have, which is, say, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, of course, but. And I don't want there to be any buts. If at the end of this, you've got Jesus, but, then you haven't grasped it. If you are a normal human being, if you are someone who's as screwed up as the rest of us, you look at yourself, you look at the world, you look at your own life circumstances, you look at all that's going on around, and at some point you are going to ask, why is it so unfair? Why are things so confused? Why are things not right? What's God going to do about it? If God created the world good, then why does this happen? Now, I think that this first servant song, it's, it is, it's the first of Isaiah's songs about Jesus. I think this first servant song just gives the answer. In the previous chapters, there's been great turmoil. There's great questions. There's great themes. And then now it's as though there's this still small voice which says, yes, and this is the answer. Now, as we continue to go through Isaiah, you will find this coming up again and again. There are uh, several of these servant songs which have an increasing emphasis on the suffering of the servant and the joy that eventually brings. For example, go to chapter 61 and a beautiful uh, servant song there. Here is my servant, he asks. Well, let's ask this. Who is the servant? Isaiah has been called the servant. The people of Israel have been called the servant. But this is something new. This is a new development. This is beyond Israel. This is an announcement. I'm afraid the NIV doesn't quite get it. Here is my servant whom I behold. I I uphold, rather. This is much more an announcement. Behold. My servant. And who is this servant? Well, as we read on, the bruised reed he will not break and so on. He will be gentle, he will bring justice and so on. It is clear that the servant is not Israel, that the servant is not Isaiah, and that the servant is not the church today, and the servant is not you and me. Though we'll also see that the servant is those. Now that's just one of these scriptural paradoxes. But... The servant ultimately is Jesus Christ. And here's why. I'll tell you why the servant's not me and it's not you. It's because I am resentful and complaining. 
I am fearful and dismayed. I am blind and deaf and disobedient. We are the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, not the servant. And Jesus Christ, he is the servant. So this is an introduction to Jesus. And I I really mean this. If you are not a Christian, I want you to listen with all the intensity that you possibly can. Jesus said, if you've got ears here, I, I want you to listen. There are questions and things you may have you may not understand. I, I don't want you to, to be detached. I don't want you to break off and start thinking about other things. If you're not a Christian, I want you to hear who Jesus is. Because I don't want you to become a Christian unless you know who Jesus is. And then if you are a Christian, then... Your greatest need is also to see Jesus. So let's look at what this is. Because I I believe that the Christ that is portrayed here is so extraordinarily beautiful that if you see him, you will be drawn to him. It's like something that's just so stunning. I I cycled across to St. Andrew's on Friday and decided to go through Tentsmuir Forest. And it was just a, a gorgeous, glorious day. And and, and I stopped at the car park, uh, well, just before the car park there, and went out onto the beach, and there was this light going through the trees. And I just wanted to keep going to get to the beauty that that light was coming from. And I think this is what we need to draw us to Christ. So, first of all, the servant is full of the spirit and brings justice. Verse 1, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He's the one whom I uphold. Now some of this, I'm going to have to go through fairly rapidly because um, otherwise we'd be here a long, long time. But each idea here is to me sufficient to meditate on for, for hours. And here's one, he's the one I uphold. Now if the servant is Jesus, what is God saying about his son? I mean, it's, it's, you know, we talk to the children, for example, we talk about the Trinity to the children, and we say, ah, well, the children don't understand it. Do you understand it? Do I understand it? No, I don't understand it. The children have sometimes got a better understanding than we do. Here's the father saying, my servant, I uphold, and he uses a word which says, I, I, I grip tight. And I delight in him, my chosen one in whom I delight. Uh, Most of you will probably have work. I wonder if you went into work tomorrow and your boss said to you, Ah, here's John, my servant in whom I delight, my employee in whom I delight. You're not going to, you're going to go, what's he been on? our, our, Our bosses don't speak to us like that. But here's this extraordinary thing where Jesus is called the servant And the father says, I delight in him. Now, why is he called the servant? Because he's been given a particular task to do. The greatest task of all, as Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And God delights in his servant. He's the one who is to bring justice to the nation. You go back to Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5, and you'll see the same characteristics. This is the characteristic of the real descendant of David, the real Davidic king. And he's to bring justice. And the word justice is a really interesting one because it's bigger than we normally understand. We understand it in terms of um, the courts and the legal situation. But 
Mispat in the Bible carries the idea of, the Hebrew word for justice, carries the idea of the order that God has given in the created universe. That feeling that you have, this is not fair, this is not right, this is not the way it should be. Why did I have to bury my child? Why does this go on in the world? Why are people so cruel and harsh? Why is the church such, this is not the way it's meant to be. And God says, yes, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. There is injustice in this world. Isaiah 40, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who is it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? In Isaiah 41, this word is used to talk about the false claims that the gods of the nations make. Or in Isaiah 40, it has to do with Israel's relationship with God. Now, the claim that's being made here is a phenomenal claim, a phenomenal claim. God's saying, I'm going to send my servant and he's going to put everything wrong right. We live in a bent and twisted universe. He's going to straighten it out. People will sometimes say, I I don't believe in God because this happens, because that happened. Why doesn't God do something about it? This is God's answer. God's answer is, yes, I have. I have done something. Now that's why in Matthew chapter 3 verse 16 you get it blended in with Psalm 2 verse 7. Sinclair um, has been reminding us constantly and rightly that there is a theme going through uh, or maybe various themes but one particular theme going through from Genesis to Revelation and if you didn't get a chance please do listen online to the sermon last Sunday evening which explains that. But Matthew 3, you get Psalm 2, verse 7, and you get Isaiah 42 blended together. As Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. I will put my Spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nation. He is my chosen one in whom I delight." Calvin says that Christ was sent in order to bring the whole world under the authority of God and obedience to him. And this shows that without him, everything is confused and disordered. Before he comes to us, there can be no proper government amongst us. And therefore, we must learn to submit to him if we desire to be well and justly governed. Please listen to this. Without Christ, life is confused and disordered. Those of you who are not believers... You need to grasp that. And those of us who are believers, every time you put Jesus to the side, every time you say that you're a believer, but you leave him out of the picture, in anything in your life, without Christ, everything is confused and disordered. So the first thing is, the servant is the one on whom the spirit rests, and he's the one who's going to sort out everything. He's going to one who's bringing justice. And then... The servant is gentle and faithful. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. When a conqueror like Cyrus took over, he would go into an area and he would announce, here is your God. When the Germans in the Second World War captured Paris, there was, of course, a big triumphal parade, marching under the Arc de Triomphe. It was was very, you know, a, a big triumph. Cyrus was used to going saying, here is your new ruler. 
You must submit to him. I've just defeated your old ruler in battle. God says, this is my servant. And he won't be like that. Look, at, look what he says. He does not dominate. He does not assert himself. He does not shout over people. He does not shout aloud in the street. His is the way of quiet instruction. If you've watched any of the political debates over the past couple of weeks, isn't it interesting how our future leaders think that in order to be heard, they have to shout over one another? No, I'm not sure I grasp that. I'm not sure why that is. I mean, that's an instinct that I would have. But why do people think that's leadership? And if you listen to politicians on the radio, you'll notice when the interviewer asks them a question, they've all been taught now to say this, excuse me, let me finish. And you think, hang on, there's, just, there's something very uncomfortable about that. Well, here's Jesus, and he's very different. See, I think, by the way, let me say, I think there's something about our evangelism here we need to be careful about. Should we go on a protest mar- march for Jesus? Should we be walking down the street with a banner going, what do we want, Jesus? When do we want him now? And, and declaring our witness. Should we even be standing in the streets and shouting? Now, in some ways, I have a great admiration for people who've got the guts to stand out in front of the cared hall and, and try and preach the Bible. But I wonder if that's... There. I mean, yes, in an era when there was no um, radio, television, when, when there were no cars running around and so on, but what kind of impression does it give to people? We are speaking the truth, but are we communicating the truth? I think Jesus here is the opposite also. I think he's the opposite of that. I think he's the opposite of the celebrity Jesus. You know, someone who's really famous, who does some really amazing things. Because what does Jesus do? He does the miracles and he says, keep quiet. Shh, calm it down. Don't create this kind of mass hysteria. Keep quiet. Jesus doesn't go, look at what I've done. I think it's an extraordinary picture of Jesus. And you'll notice here how... Tender he is to the weak and to the inadequate. Your great rulers, they don't care. They don't care about the weak. They're dismissive of them. But what an extraordinary thing. Jesus is not dismissive of others. See, you and I can be. Somebody says something to us, we dismiss it. Somebody says something online, we we write a jibe. Someone says something even to our face and in our hearts, we go, oh, what an idiot. Or I don't want to hear what they've got to say. We can be really dismissive of people. People who we don't consider equal to us. People who we don't um, uh, appreciate. Or people who we don't want much to do with. We can be dismissive. Jesus is never dismissive. See the smoldering wick. That's an image. What's the image of? The image is of a life that's burnt down to the end and is about to be put out. It's done. It's finished. And what do you do with a smoldering wick? If you light candles, uh, sometimes we have candles in our house, just for effect, not for religious rituals, for those of you who are worried, um, but just they're quite nice, you know, and you have the candle lighting, and what do you do? When night's over, or when the, the evening's over, and people have gone home, and you're going to bed, you go around and you snuff out the smoldering wick. And that's the image that's used. And it's used of people or the bruised reed. And it's saying, 
actually Jesus doesn't snuff out the smoldering wick, the person who's at the absolute end in terms of their life. He doesn't take the bruised reed, screw it up and throw it away. He mends the broken reed and reignites the smoldering wick. And again, what's extraordinary here is this. In faithfulness, um, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged. The Hebrew words for falter or be discouraged are linked with the words for the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. And what's being said here is this, and this is where it gets deep. He will be bruised. He will be burned. The things that crush and quench, he will experience. He is also the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, but he will finish the work. He won't give up. You're finished. You're done. You're shattered. You can't cope. And along comes who? Not the mighty conqueror, but along comes somebody who's crushed and burned and broken. And because of that, his greatness is so much greater. God says, I'm sending to you, not Cyrus. Cyrus is my servant in judgment, if you like. But I'm sending you my servant who will suffer. And that's the whole theme that goes on through the end of Isaiah. And because my servant suffers, he will rule you without breaking you. He will rule you without snuffing you out. Matthew 12, 15, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all that are sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight, and so on. And it quoted the rest of this passage. Look in this as well at verse 4, where uh, till he establishes justice on the earth, in his law the islands will put their hope you know what Isaiah is saying? He's saying, this isn't just about Jerusalem. This isn't just about you, little Israel. This is about the end islands of the earth, which is Scotland, you know, Australia, America, whatever. In their terms, these are the islands of the earth. And he is saying, although they don't know, the whole world is waiting for a savior just like this. He is the savior of the world. And incidentally, and again, I'd love to go into this, but I can't. He, look how he does it. He does it by his teaching. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Our hope, as we sang, is in Christ alone because he is gentle, because he doesn't have to shout over people. He doesn't have to say, hang on, let me finish my point. He doesn't have to yell at us because of who he is and what he did. All he has to do is speak. And if we see who he is, then we listen. Now, one word about gentleness. I do want to say this. Don't misuse this teaching. Don't use it as an excuse for cowardice or weakness. Because I know that there are people who think like this. And they'll think, well, I'm actually very gentle. I'm not an aggressive person at all. You know, and they might look and they might say to somebody like me, you're actually quite aggressive. You know, you're in your face and so on. And, uh, you know, you shouldn't be that. Well, maybe that's right. And I have a lot to learn from this. I was very convicted by reading it, actually. Genuinely very convicted by thinking about Christ and thinking how unlike Christ I am. But please be careful about being smug in your silence and your compromise. In your failure to speak for Christ and live for him. You let Christ be blasphemed and you don't respond. 
and then you boast about how gentle you are. Calvin got it spot on. He said this, many persons wish to profit by the name of gentleness so as to gain the applause and esteem of the world, but at the same time, they betray truth in a base and shameful manner. Here's the trick. We live and stand for Jesus, but we are not the angry and aggressive and self-righteous and dominating and dismissive people that would so badly reflect the beauty of Christ. And then this goes on. The servant is even more. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out. Now, here is where my mind really hurt. I couldn't cope with this. I was trying to think about this. I was trying to understand it. And I understood it. But what I understood was, for me, so overwhelming. Because this is addressed to the servant. Now, that's really important. Because Jesus knew Isaiah. He quoted Isaiah. He would have memorized Isaiah. He would have learned Isaiah. And as the God-man learning... He would have learned this is the father speaking to him. And this is what the father is saying. This is holy ground, if you like. This is an insight into the Trinity. This is the father encouraging the son, the God who creates and gives life and breath. He calls the servant in righteousness. He upholds the servant. Here, God is called Hael, the real transcendent God. He created all and he cannot forget us all. Life is not self-evident. It does not come from evolution. It is the gift of God. And he calls this servant in righteousness, in, in perfect justice. And he says this, I will take hold of your hand. So Jesus is in the temple as a 12-year-old boy. And he learns his father saying, I will take hold of your hand. He's in the garden of Gethsemane saying, my God, my God, take this cup from me. And an angel is sent to strengthen him. And God says to him, I will take hold of your hand. It's not blasphemous. It's an, if, if you like, it's a picture, but it's a picture we understand. God the Father taking hold of the son's hand. Why do you take your child's hand? To strengthen them and to encourage them. Luther got this wonderfully. He said, God did this namely for this reason, that Satan... And the world, with all their might and wisdom, will resist your work. So as Jesus goes to Gethsemane, as Jesus is on the cross, don't think there wasn't a struggle. Don't think Jesus strolled along with his hands in his pockets, kind of, I'm the son of God, I can handle this and I can cope this. You think of the deepest struggle you've gone through, you haven't even begun to grasp the depths of what Christ went through, the struggle to give up. Do you think he was faking it when he prayed? My God, my God. Not at all. Now I think that God held his hand and he was conscious of his hand except once where it was let go. And that of course, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is the hand? As we go through Isaiah, you will come again and again on this picture of suffering. Now, part of this here, as we then go on, you've got to open eyes that are blind, free captives from prison and so on. Why did he go through that? Because of the human condition. 
As Calvin says, we are most wretched, empty, and destitute of all blessings and surrounded and overwhelmed by innumerable distresses until we are delivered by Christ. And there are four pictures used here. And again, I'm just going to mention them. But the covenant, the theme of the covenant is huge in scripture. The covenant between God and his people, the divine giving of grace, something that we do not deserve. The servant, says God, is the covenant. He is the covenant. All the blessings of the covenant are him. In him. Now, when people ask, does God care? What has God done? You point them to Jesus. When you are a Christian and you're saying, Lord, help me, you go to Jesus because he already has. He is the covenant. He's also the light. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all people, said Zechariah. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What does the light do? The light gives sight to the blind. Because every one of your circumstances change when you see things in a new light. You know, we sang that light of the world, you came down into darkness. You, you need to experience that in your own heart and in your own mind. Now, you need to experience that. You need to know that. Or everything is obscured. He's the redeemer. Sin kills, traps, enslaves. The redeemer rescues, sets free. He restores people to true humanity true human freedom and dignity. We are, the Christian church is at the forefront of the anti-trafficking movement where women and children are being sold into slavery and we should be. But listen, we were always into anti-trafficking because when you walk out that door, in fact, within here as well and within ourselves, what are we? We are slaves to sin. We need to be freed. That's why the servant comes. He's called to be that. And then finally, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. The servant is the glory of God. I think this is a magnificent description of God. What you and I need is when things seem to be the opposite, we need a better understanding, not even so much of who we are or what is happening, but we need a better understanding of who God is. He is the creator of the heavens, the one who gives breath to all people. There is but one God and he will not give his glory to another. This servant is to bring him and his world to a a world that's full of God and to say, no, these are not gods. There is one God who is jealous for his name and glory. His name is his personal identity, different from idols. His glory is not for sharing, which is why it is so grievous and so hurtful and so break your, which should break your heart. When people identify God with someone other than the God of the Bible. Now, I wrote a piece this week on Islam. Do you know what gutted me? And I mean gutted me. Was nearly all the Muslims I spoke to accepted that what I said was true. But the most bitter attacks were from Christians. How dare you be so Islamophobic? And I'm not even talking about liberal Christians. I'm talking about people who call themselves evangelical Christians. And it it was extraordinary. I couldn't believe what happened with that. And I was thinking all through, and then I looked at this, and I, I am God. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. I don't know. In my article, I'd said it was an important issue in the election. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I'll tell you this. I know of no more important issue for the church than this. Who do we worship? 
We have no right to take Jesus Christ and to mix him in with all the other gods and then say we're doing it out of love. He's jealous for his name and his glory. And then Isaiah looks forwards and backwards. When he looks back, he's looking back to the former things, the prophecies that had already been fulfilled. And then he looks to the new things. And he says, God's glory is now going to be displayed in a new way. It will lead to a new heavens and a new earth. And we'll read about that in Isaiah 65 and 66. That it's not going to fade away. Well, such is the way my brain works. As I was thinking about this, Buddy Holly's song, Not Fade Away, uh, came into my head. And then I heard that uh, uh, Don McLean's lyrics for American Pie had just sold for almost uh, a million pounds. And I remembered that particular song, and I'll tell you why that song really, really fits in here, because McLean wrote it partly uh, remembering Buddy Holly's death. But actually, the song is a very confused song, the words and so on, but it's about the day the music died. And it's about the replacement of religion with music. I'll just, I'm not singing, but I'll just quote you some of the words because I think, I think they're extraordinary words. I met a girl who sang the blues and I asked her for some happy news, but she just smiled and turned away. I went down to the sacred store where I'd heard the music years before, but the man there said the music wouldn't play. The song, you see, mentions various people, mentions the Rolling Stones and Buddy Holly and so on. It keeps going on how we replace God with music and how that music has now gone. The music died. That's the point. And in the streets, the children screamed, the lovers cried and the poets dreamed, but not a word was spoken. The church bells all were broken. And the three men I admire the most, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the coast the day the music died and they were singing bye-bye, Miss American Pie. What he's saying is just simply this. We gave up God. We gave up religion. We replaced it with music, but the music's faded. The music's died. Buddy Holly died. The stones, they, they... sang about peace and love and somebody was stabbed to death in front of them and they continued to play. He writes about that and he says it died. All our glory fades except the word of God. God says I'm doing a new thing and that's what my servant is for. And so he contrasts with Cyrus. Cyrus ruled by force. Jesus is filled with the spirit. Jesus rules by his teaching. Jesus is gentle and not overbearing. Jesus' mission will involve suffering. We need release from physical captivity indeed, but we also need relief from bitterness, despair, and spiritual darkness. And I'll say this to you as a non-Christian. Your deepest need, whatever the, the, the felt need that you have at its most just now, your deepest need is your broken relationship with God and you can't fix it and I can't fix it and religion can't fix it nobody can fix it the only one who can fix it is the servant and he's not the servant who's coming to you and yelling you now get it sorted he's the servant who's coming to you and he's saying this is what I did this is what I did this is what I did for you you're a smoldering wick a bruised reed you're arrogant you're proud and you're broken and so many other things but I did this for you Why would you not come to Christ? You have these questions. You want the answer. The answer is in Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, the term the light was also a designation for the church. Paul in Barnabas in Acts 13, 46 says this, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. 
Do you know what happened when they said that? When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. You know what I think? I think one of the reasons that we don't witness is we don't feel that we're the light. I don't feel like I'm the light. I feel, my goodness, the darkness within. I don't want, I don't want anyone to see that. We talk about being the light. But I think that's, this is what we have to do. We have to look away from ourselves and we have to point people to Jesus. We're, we're not saying to people, we're saying this is what Jesus is. This is who he is. This is what he has done. The identity of the servant is Christ, but it is also Israel and it is also us. Why? Because if you're a believer, you are in Christ. That is the beauty of Paul's great emphasis continually about being in Christ. You're crucified with Christ. You died with Christ. Psalm 18, I read in Psalm 18 this week, Psalm 18 verses 16 and 17. For me, again, they were just lovely verses and they fit so well in, in, in this whole theme. It says this. <clears throat> he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. I held his hand. My servant I delight, I take grip of. Oh, you foolish people. You're, you're, you're so beaten in your Christianity that you're saying, I don't know if I can hold on. That's not the point. What has God told you? He said, do you think I sent my son to wait for you to hold on to him? As I hold on to my son, so you are in Christ and I hold on to you. Here is the most amazing thing. You cannot possibly imagine the love that the father has for the son. But you need to know this. He has that same love for you. Here am I and the children God has borne me. Christ has got the whole world in his hand. And he has got you in his hand. Please don't let the devil put you off with a lie that says God is over there. And he's maybe reaching out to you. Maybe he's not. Maybe it's how you respond. Maybe in all this. And you are a believer and you trust in Jesus. And the devil has got you absolutely shattered down. Because you listen to his lie. But you need to listen to the servant. You need to listen to the song of the servant. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you in his hands. And the music will never die. It will never die. It will never fade away. It's why you can go out of here and you can smile. It's why you can say to people, do you know, I have got such good news for you. It is so good that I don't think you're going to even begin to grasp it. That's what we need to do. We need to ask the Lord Jesus to make us see him better and to be more like him to reflect his glory in how we follow him, knowing all the time that every time we stumble and fall, he's got us in his hands. He's got a grip of us and nothing will ever separate us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. and It's so 
wonderfully beautiful that you forgive, that you restore, and that you renew. And every time we fall down in the muck, you pick us up and you clean us and we go on and we do it again and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. Lord, help us, those of us who are believers, to be awakened from our sleep and help us to see the beauty, the absolute all-encompassing beauty of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for so focusing on ourselves. Forgive us for the way that we harbor resentments and hatreds. Forgive us for our arrogance and our pride and our anger. Forgive us for our unchristlike nature and character. And Lord, help us to look to you. And for those of us who don't know you, we just simply pray that you would forgive us and come into our lives and enable us to follow you, that we might go and be with you in heaven, but also know you with us on earth. For we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.